Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. Today, Dr. Jenny Rook joins us. Jenny is the founder and managing director of Genoa Ventures, which invests in early stage companies innovating at the intersection of biology and technology with a focus on research tools, molecular diagnostics, synthetic biology, ag biotech, and industrial biology. In today's interview, we discuss her background in genetics, physics, and computer science, the backstory behind founding Genoa Ventures, how she built the largest life sciences syndicate on AngelList and maintains it as one of the highest performing syndicates of any sector, why Genoa focuses on companies at the intersection of biology and technology, the effects of the Theranos implosion on the industry, her take on the focused versus generalist VC, how she accounts for additional layers of scientific and or regulatory risk, the biggest impediments to advancement in life sciences, the milestones and requirements needed to raise a Series A in the space, if she backs scientist-led startups, and we wrap up with a discussion on how she defines success for herself and Genoa. Here's the interview with Jenny Rook of Genoa Ventures. Dr. Jenny Rook joins us today from San Francisco. Jenny is the founder and managing director of Genoa Ventures. Genoa Ventures is a Silicon Valley-based venture firm with investments in Zymergen, Caribou Biosciences, and IonPath, among others. Previous to Genoa Ventures, Jenny worked at Fidelity Biosciences, a Cambridge-based healthcare VC, and later the Gates Foundation, where she managed and deployed over $250 million in genetic engineering, diagnostics, and synthetic biology. She has successfully built the largest life sciences syndicate on AngelList that is also one of the highest performing syndicates of any sector. Jenny, welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. Glad to be here. Yeah, talk about uh, a bit about your background in genetics and physics, computer science, and you know how that kind of led you to a career in investing. Yeah, so as you mentioned, my my background is really deep in the sciences. I'm a scientist still at heart. Uh, was studying physics and computer science as an undergrad at Georgia Tech, and had never been particularly interested in biology. It seemed like this kind of squishy descriptive, not particularly rigorous uh, <laughs> discipline, but that was just because I was looking at it incorrectly <laughs> and um, took a took a class where I was exposed to genetics for the first time and just completely fell in love with with genetics. For me, it is the 
the intersection and the embodiment of that that quantitative, information-rich, rigorous science that I had been training in in math and physics, computer science, but it's it's embodied in the physical world, and that that's just so exciting. Um, so really, ever since then, I've been uh, looking for ways to one advance the field. There's so much we still don't know, um, and and two find ways to be useful with it uh, to um, to solve problems and um, and help people and make an impact in the world with with the science of genetics and related disciplines. So there were a lot of uh, steps along the way to get additional skills and you know, going into management consulting to learn what business was and you know how to think about strategy, uh, building a startup to uh, really learn uh, operational experience, uh, but then eventually settling on investing as a way to bring all of those skills together to help the next generation of business builders who are trying to solve problems with science and technology, which is what I love to do. Awesome. Tell us a bit about how you uh, how you started working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That was certainly not uh, an expected step. I will <laughs> tell you, I had I really didn't know very much about the organization other than its um, you know great reputation, um, and I had uh, had been in venture for a couple of years by that time. Like you said, at, at Fidelity Biosciences in the Cambridge area, and was just kind of cutting my teeth, I would say, in venture after a couple of years. I had led a couple of deals. I was kind of getting the the swing of things. And and this opportunity to join the Gates Foundation arose right at the right time, where what they needed was someone who had deep expertise in genetics specifically and also had a strategy toolkit and investing experience. It was comfortable deploying capital. Uh, that's a pretty unusual intersection. There's more and more now, but you know, at, at the time, this was over 10 years ago, that was a, a pretty limited um, set of people. And so sure. I reached out to see uh, how I could be helpful. And what I learned was they were making really exciting bets um, broadly in the areas of engineered biology, genetic engineering, synthetic biology, to solve the big problems that, that that organization has has set out in their mission to address, like eradicating malaria. And I found that really compelling to kind of bring that toolkit that I had developed to, to bear upon their goals. And as a fledgling investor, I was really curious what it would do to my development as an investor, someone thinking about how to deploy capital through science to retire risk and get to milestones if my timelines were different, if they weren't constrained by the kind of seven, 10 year VC timelines, and if the way I was measuring returns was different, which was in really lives saved and impacted as opposed to cash on cash or IRR. Um, so it was a really interesting variation to me on the investor role um, for my own personal development as I was still trying to you know, try to learn to be the best kind of investor I could be. Uh, to modify you know, some of those parameters and keep learning. Awesome, awesome. So, what what are Melinda and Bill like in person? <laughs> well, they are uh, every bit as extraordinary as their reputations uh, would lead you to believe. Good, good. So, we mentioned this in the intro, but you have one of the uh, most successful syndicates on AngelList, uh, regardless of sector. I, I think I just took a peek at the rankings this morning, and both Stack <laughs> and 
Both Newstack and Genoa are, are in the top five. So we, awesome. feel, yeah. we feel like we're in good company with you, Jenny. But can <laughs> you talk great. can you talk a bit about why you started with a syndicate and how you've been able to sort of drive such high performance early on? Yeah, I'm I'm so grateful for AngelList for uh, going out on a limb and really innovating how early stage capital formation can be done. Uh, it was right at the right time for me. I had had left the the Gates Foundation. I had moved to the Bay Area in 2013 to really give back into the world that I most love and is kind of the best fit for my metabolic rate and pace, which is just that early stage startup where. You know, people are passionate about solving a problem and they're moving really fast and they're going lean. That's where I love to operate. So I came here and I was finding great companies and helping connect them to capital. I started working again with my previous employer, Fidelity, now called F Prime Capital, as a venture partner. And so was really back in that ecosystem. But but what I found was a real gap in the marketplace for um, companies that were life sciences but weren't necessarily healthcare or the next therapeutic. And you know, as you know, I'm sure the the VC landscape is pretty siloed. Or traditional VC, you've got your healthcare VCs and you've got your tech VCs. And in the five or six years since then, there's been more incursion from one side or the other into the middle. But it, it's still pretty white space. Uh, meanwhile, there are more and more companies coming along that are definitely biology-based. And so you have to have the expertise and the toolkit that I learned from Fidelity Biosciences for how to evaluate them, how to help them, how to navigate that risk. But you have to be up for a journey that is something other than the next therapeutic that's going to go through the clinic. So I kept finding companies that I was excited about that just weren't a match for either of the kind of traditional sectors in BC. And so it was right around that time that Angelus started the syndicates program, where, as you know, a syndicate lead could bring to the AngelList investor community an opportunity, explain in a deal memo why the lead was investing and why they were excited, basically the investment thesis, yep. and invite others to to join. And so I think of it as uh, you know a nano version of venture where I, as the GP, am going to my backers in the syndicate, my nano LPs to say, you know, this is my thesis. I'm the manager here. I have the expertise to evaluate the deal. Um, who's with me? You know, it's just kind of deal at a time and on a smaller scale. So I was able to, the most exciting thing about all of that to me was that I was able to connect some awesome companies with early stage capital at that time where there you know, weren't good venture sources. And so you mentioned Zymergen, you know, invested in the seed round at a time and you know, they just didn't make sense to to either healthcare investors or most tech investors. Other companies, since then, like like Zephyrus, where they only needed a seed sized check to be able to leanly develop a product, get into the customers' hands, and and exit. And that you know that's not a great fit for like a traditional five hundred million dollar healthcare fund. So it was so exciting to be able to use the syndicate's mechanism to connect those kinds of companies with some early stage capital as they were, you know, building out the team, as they were proving out their 
their vision. So it happened again and again. I just kept finding exceptional companies, kept using AngelList as a way to capitalize those early deals. And and that's uh, what brought us to today. So I did about 10 deals on AngelList from 2014 to 2017 prior to launching Genoa last year. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I was talking to a, a Series A VC recently that was telling me that they do... Uh, uh, you know, they invest out of a fund and and recently added SPV sidecars. And mm. uh, when he heard my story about our timeline is almost the same as yours. You know, mm-hmm. we did ten deals from fourteen to eighteen, and then then closed the fund. But um, he said, "Oh, you guys did it the opposite way." <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was saying, "Well, not really. We just kind of built it bottoms up. But hey, whatever yeah. works for you, right?" Yeah, we sort of did it the OG way, right? Right. Which is to (laughs) say, really focus on the companies. What do the companies need? How do we get them the right capital at the right stages? And then if that turns out to be um, scalable and better executable using the tools of a venture with a blind pool fund and LPs and capital calls, then great, let's do that. But, you know, for me, and it sounds like for you, it's never been about VC for VC's sake or the prestige or the sexiness of being a venture or having a fund. It's like, what are the right tools for the job to help the best companies build what they want to build? First principles. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, so do you still syndicate alongside the fund? You know, I haven't so far. Certainly the fantastic backers who are part of my syndicate on AngelList, they have, of course, pro rights in, in many of those deals. So there are a few deals that I still run on AngelList to make sure they have access to their follow-on allocations. But I'm not currently doing any new deals on AngelList. I've got kind of my hands full <laughs> starting I a bet. firm and, and raising a fund. But I do think it's interesting, you know, think in the longer term creatively about capital formation and, and all the different tools that are available and whether, you know, there might be companies that come along that are not a fit for our fund, our core fund, but might be a good fit for, for Angelus. I think that's something interesting to consider and then the main issue that one runs into is just the bandwidth and kind of having the discipline to make the now the the fund and my investors my number one priority. Like I'm accountable to them and to returns. And so, you know, my next available unit of work and thought <laughs> and needs to go to that as opposed to to any other kind of investment. Good, good. So you talked earlier a, a bit about the thesis um, and this mm-hmm. this white space that exists between, you know, the life sciences and the technology. Uh, mm-hmm. On the website, it says Genoa Ventures invests in early stage companies innovating at the intersection of biology and technology. I'd like to understand better what that means. So you know, what is what is the prototypical company that's kind of at this intersection? You know, you could give us examples or. Uh, explain to us kind of more in depth about the you know the types of companies you're looking for that are on thesis for Genoa. Yeah, absolutely. So for the mathy folks out there, if you think about 
biology and technology as kind of independent axes or vectors. I think of this as a, a kind of cross product situation where biology and technology are these forces that have historically been kind of separate or independent, but they are increasingly colliding. Mm -hmm. And so you get kind of vectors coming off of that in a few directions. So one of them for us is the incorporation, increasing incorporation of other kinds of technology into the practice of biology and biology-based businesses. And so, you know, a, a simple example that probably anyone who's been tracking the space knows about is Illumina, uh, which is the absolute leader in DNA sequencing. So is this a biology company? Well, absolutely. They are the underpinning of so much that's happening in genetics and genomics research, in genetics-based clinical practice, diagnostics, discovery of new medicine. This is definitely a life sciences company and increasingly a healthcare company. But is it a therapeutic? No, it is not, right? It, its product itself is a collection of, of chemistries, of hardware, of optics, of data sciences. So those are the kinds of companies that I, I've always loved as a scientist because they're making science go, right? They're really advancing where we are, the playing field of science. Um, but they're also typically not terribly well understood because the the underlying technologies themselves are not necessarily biology. Mm -hmm. um, they're applied in biology. And I would say also their business model, unlike a therapeutics company, looks more like a tech company in that they are uh, products that need to be launched with product life cycles, with customers that need to be acquired and served, very different from like a, a therapeutics company. So that that's one sort of direction and we love those kinds of companies and I'm particularly happy to lead first round investments for those kinds of companies. So the other direction that comes out of the, the collision of these two forces or the intersection of biology and technology, we think of as biology as technology, where the biology itself is increasingly not just understandable, but engineerable. So the headline example here that I think people are more and more familiar with are, is CRISPR-Cas-based gene editing and the ability to go in and manipulate the DNA, say, of a cell that you might be using in an experiment and to be much more precise and, and deliberate about how you're, you're changing the DNA of, mm -hmm. of an organism or a cell. So that's, I think, very visible, but I would say this this kind of harkens back to the work I did at the Gates Foundation, which was, believe it or not, pre-CRISPR era gene editing, where <laughs> there, there are other systems for doing gene editing and, and for genetic engineering, and we've been doing it, you know, for decades now. And a lot of that work was, you know, again, not just in, say, the latest therapeutics, but in things like crops with increased nutritional content for better health or the engineered mosquitoes that now people have heard about for controlling Zika or dengue. So that's a, a space that I think it's, it's less well-developed for, for venture investing, but our long-term thesis is um, thinking about biology as a technology is going to result in, no pun intended, a whole new crop of types of solutions um, <laughs> that will have impact not just in healthcare, but in agriculture and chemicals and beyond. Love it. And I don't want to focus on the negative per se, but uh, does a company like Theranos, does that 
it, it feels like to me that that's the intersection of biology and technology. Is there any negative blowback in sort of the ecosystem at large and, and venture funding because of, you know, this, this one company's probably overhyped demise? Something I've said about Theranos, which, which sounds cheeky, but I'll stand by it, is no one in my industry ever thought Theranos was in my industry. Oh, interesting. And what, and what I mean by that is it's really exciting. I would say the positive part of, about Theranos, two, two positive things at least. One is the mission, I think, really captured the imagination of other types of investors and of the public well beyond kind of the traditional healthcare sector. Right? The idea of bringing better healthcare to the point of individual patients and consumers to do that more efficiently that's awesome. We all want that. And I think you're absolutely right to call out that mission as being squarely in Genoa's focus area. That is absolutely technology driving biology, making you know, biology-based solutions more available, uh, more effective. So right. we love that. Right. I will tell you, before Theranos, I had seen approximately a thousand business plans or pitches along those lines. Wow. Yeah, so so that it wasn't a new idea by any means. What was sort of new about it was how it somehow became so visible to a much broader audience and captured a lot of dollars to go, go along with that attention. So the demise was not unusual either, right? Of those approximately 1,000 plans, very few of them have, have made any kind of headway, and certainly none of them have achieved the full full potential. So that's not unusual. That's not terrible. And we celebrate trial and error in this space. So that that's all fine. So what again, what made it kind of special or unusual is just the, the scale and in some ways the scandal of, of the demise. But the positive part of that as well is I think for everyone who was paying attention also learned hopefully or, or uh, have the opportunity to learn a really important lesson which is that these uh, really compelling visions uh, with passionate leaders are still subject to the laws of physics and, and indeed to the laws of our nation, <laughs> so the regulatory requirements as well. And so you can't, you know, passion and spend your way through some of those laws. They're either the way the world works physically which is not subject to hacking, or they are the way laws and regulations work, which are there to keep patients safe. And we probably don't want people hacking them. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think that was an important, again, an important lesson for, for either investors or entrepreneurs who are interested in the space is to know what aspects of the challenges that you're trying to address can be innovated through, can be overcome with passion, and know which ones are actually barriers that you must pass between, you must uh, navigate among. So given all that, I mean, to answer your question, I don't think there has been much impact in in our space. Um, I don't think there's been blowback amongst investors who are investing in that space because, again, we didn't think that this was... You know, there was clearly a mismatch between the story and the technology from the beginning for anybody who has expertise in this space. It has, I think, 
been helpful in that it has cooled some of the exuberance amongst non-expert investors, uh-huh. which is probably to their benefit as well. Very good. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I think I have to find a, a new analogy. I my big product success in a former life was a automated microfluidic solution for water analytics. And uh, ah. yes, for a while there, the analogy I used is, do you know Theranos? We we did Theranos for water. <laughs> and Uh-oh. Now to my detriment, it's it's not an analogy that really works. So Yeah, uh, that'll backfire. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately the science worked in our case. But uh Well there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so so Jenny, you mentioned these, you know, thousand pitches that you saw that were kind of reminiscent of of that business. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you, you source steel flow and, and where you find the opportunities that, that you invest in. One of the benefits of Doing this work in response to a need in the marketplace is that we have really robust and exciting deal flow that that finds us. That word gets around that if you're doing something bio-based and you want an expert investor who's not going to make you do therapeutics, you should probably go talk to Jenny and see what she's (laughs) up to at Genoa Ventures. So that's fantastic and, and certainly really happy to have you know referrals through investors in our network, entrepreneurs in our network, or even just people who read about what we're doing and for whom that it really resonates, and they say, "Yeah, that's you know, that's that intersection that I've been at and have been looking for a home." So, so we get a lot of inbound. I love to try to be you know, responsive to the community and ecosystem, and so you know, speak on panels and and help mentor at places who have you know, entrepreneurs of this type. And so I think that that helps get the word out as well. And then just like anybody, of course, we're, we're excited and curious about various advances in, in science. And so we're constantly reading and going to conferences and and talking to other innovators. So I would say it's a range, um, just like for anyone. Jenny, can you, can you talk a bit about your evaluation process and maybe some of the, the unique things that you do when, vetting prospective companies? Sure, happy to. I, I think uh, anyone who has been an investor for a while realizes that that an important element of the evaluation process is to, is to get better and better at first-pass triage. <laughs> and that's not just for our own sanity and, and time, but also for the entrepreneurs. And it is... As a scientist, as a lifelong learner, it is always tempting to take that first call and then to take that second call and learn more. You know, there's so many compelling things going on out there. But one of the things I try to you know, really honestly ask myself at the beginning of getting to interact with a company is, is this a doable deal right now for me and for Genoa, given everything else in the portfolio and everything else that's going on? And sometimes the answer is no, and it's often, I mean, most of the time the answer is no, and most of the time the no is not even a function of the company, right? So I would say that's one thing to know if if someone is out there pitching, you know, if you're pitching, you're going to hear a lot of no's, and the adage of it's not you, it's me is actually probably true in many cases. Hmm. If that has people, you know, not not get too discouraged and keep on going. What um, does that mean? Is it just a bit too far afield from a, a thesis standpoint? Or is there, you know, another factor that most often, you know, it's just not something that you could do right now? 
Yeah, I think it's it's such a, a mix of things. It was one of the surprising things about going from, you know, day one as a fledgling VC to call it, you know, day 365 and, and beyond is realizing that um, what it takes to get a deal done goes so far beyond just the, the, the technology or the thesis or the team, you know, all of those core you know, pillars of a great opportunity. It's also, you know, what, what size investment does the company really need right now? And is that a good match for where the firm is in its fund cycle? Mm-hmm. What are the key elements of the technology innovation? And do we happen to know anyone that we can call to get a quick read on that? Or would we need to do some problem solving <laughs> to figure out what that is? <laughs> Is it similar to something else we're looking at in a way that is either constructive or destructive? And then also remembering that the people on the venture side are also people. And so they have things like uh, vacations maybe coming up or, you know, uh, other things going on like in their family or other things just going on at the firm. You know, they're building businesses too. And so whether there's enough kind of mental space to get a deal done in the timeline that is relevant to the company, right? Which is the most important thing because they're mm-hmm. trying to get, you know, a certain amount of capital and a certain amount of time to keep building the business. So there's such a, there's a, such a whole host of factors that there may not even be, you know, any particular feedback that comes with the no, you know, mm-hmm. just not a fit for us at this time. And that can seem so evasive, but sometimes it's, you have to realize that the, the default is no, and so just getting over that that hurdle is is hard enough in itself. Right. Yeah, so we, we did talk about focus a bit. I'm curious to hear your take on VCs that pick a focus area and stay distinctly in their lane um, versus others that may have a focus but tend to dabble in a variety of other areas. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what's your which side of the fence do you land on? <laughs> I, you could you could probably guess given uh, the way I've been talking about this, um, and so can the listeners too. You know, I think there are different models available to different styles of investors and different uh, areas of investing. But I am of a very strong belief that if one is investing in a in a specialized area that is complex, that the way to be great at that is to really focus on that. Yeah. And that's, I think that's probably true of most pursuits. If you want to be an Olympic level athlete, you're probably not dabbling in other pursuits. <laughs> you really <laughs> yeah. focus on, on being the best at the best of that. And so I would argue that being good at investing in highly complex kind of technical areas is sufficiently hard that uh, can that you can only be good at it by focusing on it, which is not to say that there are not that there's not value that tech and generalist investors can't bring. Quite quite the contrary. Um, so I think for companies that are in the white space who don't necessarily fall into a traditional venture box, um, one of the best ways to ensure their success is to build a syndicate around them that reflects their own. Uh, interdisciplinary nature and their complexity. So we love to catalyze syndicates where we're bringing in you know, a tech investor who's really on the edge of the latest computational tools and is going to help 
the company think about that as applied to their biology-based business or an investor who really understands the chemical space or the ag space, but maybe doesn't have the deep biology expertise that we have. And so I think that complementarity can be you know, a great way to make sure that, that a company has expertise in the various pillars it needs. But then again, none of those examples I'm talking about is a, is a dabbler. It's, it's complementary. Got it. Got it. You know, a position I've heard from many VCs is that, you know, they'll say that there are additional layers of risk in life sciences, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the science itself, clinical trials, regulatory approvals, et cetera, et cetera, that don't apply with traditional tech startups, making it a very difficult category to successfully invest in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, beyond developing a, a deep expertise like like you just illustrated, do you agree that, you know, by focusing on sort of this inter- intersection of biology and technology, there are many other layers of risk that, that one has to evaluate in order to um, be successful investing in the area? Well, I do think any sector-specific investing or technology-specific investing brings in risks that are specific to that area. Yeah. Right? So, so for sure... You know, if we're investing in a company that's going to do clinical trials, then then there are risks around clinical trial design and recruitment and regulatory that one would not have to navigate if one weren't in the space. I don't know that it's more or less because conversely, if one is you know, launching consumer apps, there's a whole set of risks around consumer adoption that that frankly I'm not an expert in right. and seem pretty pretty hard to me. So. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think you know I'd want to give props to to areas that maybe it's not as obvious that they also involve deep expertise and and you know years of experience that provide you know better judgment. Um, just because all of us is in one way a consumer doesn't mean that we all know how to do consumer investing. I would say you know in the same way that just because all of us at some point interacts with biology or healthcare doesn't mean we all know how to do that kind of investing. So I think each has, you know, risks and skills necessary to navigate those risks. I do think that developing the toolkit for science-based risk evaluation and mitigation takes longer. There are no shortcuts. You know, I've had people say, oh, uh, is there any like book I could read that would kind of catch me up to speed along the lines of your six-year PhD in genetics? <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's just offensive. Right? You know, <laughs> do you think it took me six years because I wasn't smart or wasn't working at it? No, it just really takes a long time to figure this stuff out. Yes. And so, so I think that is that is true. I don't know if it's more or necessarily harder, but it is more complex and therefore it, it, it takes more time to, to do the work. What do you think is the biggest hindrance to either more or faster advancements in the, uh, the life sciences technology space? Well, I'm definitely seeing it through my lens and through my passion, which is that if I flip the question around the most powerful lever we can pull to more rapidly advance basic sciences and science-based disciplines like healthcare is is better tools. So, yep. you know, just kind of bringing it back to, to DNA sequencing, when I was getting my PhD in genetics in the 90s, 
I was able to focus my work on the sequencing and characterization characterization of a single gene. Right? That was just what was possible in that era. And that was because I was literally pouring my own sequencing gels. Right? You could only get a few hundred bases a day <laughs> out of a sequencing <laughs> experiment. Right. And now it's you know thousands and thousands of uh, genomes could be sequenced in the course of one's uh, PhD or in the course of a clinical trial, right? So exciting. And that is all because of tools advances. So I honestly think we're, we're just at the beginning of revolution in, in better tools. Fundamentally, they're all just better microscope, right? When we can see what's going on in there, whether that's literally see it or kind of metaphorically see it and generate the information, then that's going to lead to better understandings and insights in science and also ultimately better better products. Now, a challenge to that is the budgets and the spend on tools, of course, are a fraction of the overall spend on healthcare or on research. So it doesn't lend itself to like big venture wins. You know, they're not a lot of billion dollar exits in life sciences tools. Mm -hmm. But that's fundamentally why I launched Genoa so that we could stay small and generate venture quality returns on these kinds of opportunities. You know, I've never spoken with somebody that operates early like you do in this this category at large, funding early seed rounds and helping founders kind of navigate this fundraising process. We actually, we just had Ash Rust, Rust on recently, and he was talking about the different phases and gates for B2B SaaS, which I think mm-hmm. is, you know, very well established. But for, you know, a sector or a category like life sciences, it's it's clearly a, a different set of phases and gates and, and yeah. milestones. Can you talk about how you think about that and, you know, what what does it take in terms of progress to raise a seed round and, and to move on to Series A? Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, there are different answers depending on what kind of company we're talking about. Because our lens on the world is technology based, you know, we have we have different kinds of companies that they might be a diagnostics company or they might be, a, you know, agriculture company. And so the answer is going to be very different depending on what what the product is and what the market is, obviously. Uh, but just as an example, since you know we're talking about life science tools and because we we you know are so excited about them, I'll, I'll focus there as one way to think about value creation along the journey there. And so, you know, what we're often looking for in that first round that that we like to lead for these kinds of companies is the ability for the company within that that first round period to substantially de-risk on the technical side where they're able to show that their approach to, let's say, generating genomic data or generating protein data is going to work. It's not going to violate those fundamental laws of physics that we were talking about. So that you know, their innovative idea for about you know, how to, to analyze biology better or faster or cheaper is actually going to work. And it can be messy. You know, it can be a prototype. It could be something that that only they can use because they have to, you know, hold it together with one hand while turning it on the other. But but they can show that it can work, and that's a you know it's a huge step forward to go to that proof of concept. Sure. So that that's critical, and usually one way in which 
our investing is more like traditional healthcare investing is usually there's generation of blocking IP as part of that intellectual property that's going to give the company a sustainable advantage as well. So that's something we're looking for as well. Either they're coming in with that or they're generating that during the proof of concept. So are those requirements uh, after the seed round or in, in order to get the seed round? Uh, it, it can depend on the complexity of the technology that we're talking about. So I like to I like to begin with the end in mind and work backwards. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If, if what we're trying to do with that first round, whether it's called seed or A, you know, we're flexible and there's lots of considerations there. But let's say it's a seed round. What we're trying to do at the at the a completion of the seed round is that the the company is in a good position to raise a Series A because they've shown their their technology works, uh, they have proof of concept for that, and they have some headway on building an intellectual property um, barrier around that. Um, and so whether that all happened within the seed round because they were you know, super nimble and efficient or whether before the seed round they spent you know 10 years in academia doing the research, filing the patents, now that can that can vary really depending on the the nature of the science and and how complex it is and also how experienced the team is. So it's it's really about can they get to that outcome by the end of that first round that's going to enable them to raise the next round to go start putting products in customers' hands. Got it. Got it. We operate in a completely different area than you, but we think about it much the same way. We we start with, you know, the end in mind and try and work back and say in 12 to 18 months, where do you need to be in order to you know, raise that up round at yeah. more than double? So in light of that, in order to get the Series B, I'm sure there's a wide distribution of, of mm-hmm. progress, but are you expecting some level of commercialization before a B round occurs or, or not? Yeah, typically I would say yes, and I, I think you're you know, you're wise to couch it as some level of commercialization because again, we're, we're helping the company think about what it's going to take to raise the next round from a great investor with an attractive valuation. And that investor is generally going to assume we retire technical risk more or less. And as now thinking about market risk. And so they're asking, is this the right product? Do people want it? Can they use it once they've got it? <laughs> are they, they going to buy more? Are they using it at a rate that's going to support the, the business model and the pull-through and revenues? So, uh, you know, obviously the farther along one is, the company is in commercialization, the more those questions are retired. But a, a clever company working with, you know, limited resources, which is what startups are, might say, well, what are some of the best proxies we can um, create that help give someone conviction that the answer to all of those questions are yes? And so that some level of commercialization might be as limited as we've placed six of these products with some of our most compelling customers who represent our go-to-market customer types, and they're all wildly happy and they're telling their colleagues and they're using it on a weekly basis, and they're happy to buy reagents, those kinds of things. So uh, I think 
part of our job, it sounds like you do this as well. Part of our job as investors is to help a company think creatively about um, how far they can get along the goals of retiring those risks without necessarily having, you know, run a, a full fledged, fully funded commercialization effort yet. Right. Love it. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs, like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers, constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Jenny, have you invested in startups where the chief scientist is also the CEO? And and if so, <laughs> yeah, how do you assess for and or help coach the commercial skills yeah. and the leadership skills, you know, required to build and scale a, a venture backed startup? Yeah, I think this is so this is so hard and and it is a it is a struggle I I relate to and having to be a scientist and I love the science, but also recognize that what we're doing in this model of venture funded startups is uh, is building businesses first and foremost that are creating value and people are getting paid for that value. So I certainly have seen, and I think we're seeing more and more uh, technical founders who are able to fully embrace the CEO role and realize that that is different from being the CSO or the CTO and are, and are willing to go that direction and say, that means I have to hire a new CSO because it, you know, can't, I can't do both. It can't be me. It's not, not because I don't contain multitudes, but because those are two different roles <laughs> yeah. and no one's going to be great at doing both roles at the same time forever. And so I certainly, I certainly do see it happen. I will say it's, it's rare, and I think it's particularly rare for for someone who is maybe coming out directly out of a scientific role, like maybe out of their postdoc, for example, and are starting the company. It would be in many ways unreasonable for that to for us to expect them to know what that means to be to be the CEO when they've never had a job before. <laughs> so, you know, if I think about um, the set of things I just did not know or understand or appreciate when I came out with my PhD and, and went into management consulting, it's, it's kind of staggering. Um, and so I certainly would have had no business running a company when I didn't know what an operating model was, for example. So I think it's really tough, but I do think that if a founder 
the technical founder wants to go in that direction and knows they have a lot to learn and has the kind of innate capabilities and that's that's not destiny that's just you know do they have the the capabilities to learn and the drive to learn then i'm happy to to help coach in that direction i do think it's really important when one of my lessons learned frankly as an investor is to have this conversation with those founders probably from the beginning and just say you know a real question for any startup CEO is how far can they go before the right thing to do for the company is to bring in a more experienced chief executive. Um, and that's particularly true for technical founders. So let's talk about what the risks are. Let's talk about whether you're comfortable with that. And and let's begin planning for how we're going to handle that if and when it becomes a thing that we're all excited about because it's the best thing for the company. Uh, I think it's just really important to to just have a frank conversation about that sooner rather than later. Well, if, you know, if early performance is an indication of long-term results, which I, it's not, which it's not, <laughs> but I would think Genoa is, is well positioned as, you know, an emerging brand and venture, but, but I'm curious to hear more about what winning looks like for you. You know, how, how do you keep score on yourself and, and your own portfolio? You know, it's such a good question. It's one, it's one I've been thinking about myself because I'm I'm quite motivated by winning. <laughs> I'm quite motivated by by highest scores. And you know, in in school, it was uh, you know easy to stay motivated by that because you know every every other day there's a test and you can make the most on the test and more than everyone else. And I love that. <laughs> and of course, as we as we become grownups and as we take on bigger challenges that have 7, 10, 14, 30-year arcs, right? There aren't as many interim gold stars and participation trophies. <laughs> um, so, so I think, you know, designing for ourselves what, what winning looks like along the way that would be consistent with long-term winning is really important for our, for our own motivation and and for encouraging others. Now, so for me, the number one thing is the companies and the teams that are building them. And so it is. it feels like winning for me when I hear one of my CEOs say, we are so glad we had Jenny as our seed investor because look how well the Series A turned out. Or Jenny really helped us think about how to design the beta program so that we could efficiently get those answers and really engage with thought leaders. And we're, we're just so glad she helped us with that. That, is, that feels like winning because yeah. that is doing the thing that I set out to do, which is providing the best quality capital and value add I know how to, to this set of companies course, in the longer term, if they launch products that customers use and scientists use to make discoveries and advance science, then uh, that's kind of my, my long-term yardstick as well. Love it. Love it. You know, these, I don't know what it's, it's like in the Valley. Um, we have invested in companies that have Valley-based investors, but you know, there's a lot of investors across the country that have invested in some of our, our portfolio companies that critique them constantly and criticize and you know, tell them how to run their business. And it's just, it's really nice when a founder just expresses so much appreciation for the, you know, 
the goodwill that you've shown and the positive acts that you do for them. And I think these founders really appreciate it when they can build these trusted, credible relationships with, with investors that, you know, they don't have to bristle or Mm -hmm. worry every time they hop on a call with you. Yeah. And as someone who's now, you know, starting a firm myself and raising a fund and having to be on the other side of the table, I honestly don't think that building a venture firm is anywhere near as hard as building a venture backed startup. So let me start with that. But that being said, there are some, some analogies and, and it's certainly that it's certainly exhausting and discouraging pitching. You know, you get a lot of no's and so to have some investors in your court who say, yep, that's normal. No, don't, you know, don't sweat it. We're going to keep looking for the ones who get it. Uh, you're doing a good job. Yep, this is hard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. who can just re- you know reflect um, the, the ways in which building new things is hard. It takes an enormous amount of of energy and conviction. Uh, I think having having investors in my court, some some you know wonderful LPs, who I think really get us and are going to be with us for the long haul. Certainly motivating for me to be that kind of investor to my companies as well. Jenny, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think we should address and who would you like to hear speak about it? I would like to hear us as an industry talk more about the other end of the capital formation process, which is exit and liquidity. Mm. Uh, given some of the trends around larger funds and different kinds of investors, there is a need for both founders and early stage investors to have other options besides M&A or IPO as a way to to generate liquidity. Yes. And, and I think that there could be a really thoughtful dialogue around that, recognizing that when assets or companies move from the venture stage to later stage, really more like a private equity play, it might be very appropriate for early stakeholders to find good, non-disruptive ways to to exit. I think that's going to be really important if we want to keep now, early stage capital formation healthy and vibrant. There have to be kind of ways to, you know, let my uh, your your and my syndicate backers out when they're <laughs> when they're happy with their returns. You know, That's five right. to seven years in, there, there should be a, a constructive way to do that. So I'd I'd love to hear us as an industry talk about that and find um, options like secondaries that can can meet that need that can you know create opportunities for you know great great funds who are focusing on that can kind of remove some of the you know the stigma by by taking it head on and saying let's let's make products that solve this problem anyone in particular that you'd you'd like to hear from on that well, I think Ben Black at Acadian is mm. being very thoughtful about this. And so he's certainly someone I'd, I'd like to hear talk more about it and, and I'd like other people to hear him, hear his opinions. And you might actually ask some of the big later stage investors, yeah. like ask the soft banks awesome. of the world, yeah. you know, what kind of liquidity for early stage investors and founders can you imagine being acceptable to you as a later stage investor? How do we build that into our our overall plans? Good point. Jenny, what investor has influenced you most? I will say the founding team at Fidelity Biosciences. 
uh, was cheating a little bit, so I'm picking a handful of them. But Steve Knight, Robert Weisskopf, Ben Ospitz uh, had the you know, privilege of joining them as they were really establishing Fund One at, at Fidelity, now called F Prime Capital. And so that's where I learned my my toolkit for being really rigorous and thoughtful about evaluating early stage life sciences based opportunities. It's also where I learned my culture, which is a great sense of humility, thoughtfulness, and helpfulness in engaging with with companies and realizing that none of us has all the answers and we're trying to learn together. And then finally, uh, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Uh, best way to connect with me is probably through LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. Jenny Rook, Genoa, send me a message there uh, and we'll figure out the, the right next steps. All right. Well, she is Dr. Jenny Rook. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on. I'm I'm so happy that Cyan uh, suggested that we connect. This was, this was a really fun interview to do and I just really appreciate uh, all your candid responses. Thanks so much, Nick. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Great questions. And I think it really helps that we seem to have a kind of shared philosophy in our early stage investing and how we interact with our companies, even coming from obviously very different sectors. So uh, that's always a pleasure. Couldn't agree more. Thanks so much, Denny. Thanks, Nick. Take care. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.